Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a daily program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. We're working our way through the two-year version of the RMM Scripture Reading Plan, and I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to John chapter 11. Now, I mentioned earlier on in this series that some scholars speak of a threefold division to this book. They talk about the introduction in chapter 1, the book of signs running from chapter 2 to 12, and then the book of glory running from chapter 13 to 21. And of course, all such designations are somewhat arbitrary. The Gospel of John does not come with a table of contents, so there's a bit of art here. D.A. Carson, for example, treats chapters 11 and 12 as a transitional bridge, closing off Jesus' ministry in the world before putting a spotlight on the significance of his death and resurrection. And I think that's a fair perspective as well. What everyone agrees on is that this is the last and climactic sign in John's gospel. This is a sort of staged last appeal. This is a sort of grand finale, if I can use that terminology, a spectacular demonstration of his divine origin and authority. There really can be no reasonable doubt as to his bona fides after this miracle. From this point on, unbelief will have to be willful and it will be culpable. This miracle removes all doubt as to who Jesus is and where he has come from. He who has ears, let him hear. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Now, it's a little odd that John refers to an event that he hasn't yet narrated. The story of Mary anointing the Lord with ointment is told in John 12, 1 to 8. But John can refer to it as well known even before he himself tells the story. And and that, of course, reminds us that John was the last gospel written, and many of the stories about Jesus were already well known in the church. There was an oral tradition, you might say. There was a history of preaching that rooted itself in the apostolic witness to Jesus. John himself had probably told this story to his people a dozen times. And now as an old man, he's probably dictating this gospel to a young scribe so that these stories and their significance would not be lost when he passed from the earth. And I just share that because... I think it's interesting to think about why these Gospels were written and to whom. The primary audience for this Gospel would have been John's people. I'm sure he knew that others would be eager to have a copy once it was completed, but just like I produce these podcasts with the faces of my own people sort of cycling through my head, even though I know that they will be listened to in Denmark and Japan and New Zealand and Tampa Bay, Florida, still... I can't help but think of the people I know and love best. That's how you write as a pastor. And John is writing as a pastor. I think that's worth noticing. Verse 3. 
So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. It is worth noticing, again, that Jesus was not, strictly speaking, in the alleviating human suffering business. He was very selective and intentional within, with, with his signs. He, he didn't heal every person that he met. He, he didn't heal every person at the pool by the sheep gate in John 5. He healed one guy, despite that we were told in that story that the place was crowded with sick people. Jesus chose one guy. Now, that doesn't mean that he didn't care about all the other people. It just means that he was uniquely focused upon his ultimate objective and everything he did had to contribute to that objective and that objective was to glorify God. He was always primarily focused on that. He never took his eye off that ball. He was always asking the question, how can God be most glorified in this situation? And that's just a slightly different question than how can I relieve the most suffering in this situation. Jesus could have spared Mary and Martha and Lazarus a considerable amount of suffering if he had gone to Bethany as soon as he heard the report of Lazarus's illness. But he didn't, because that wasn't his primary concern. His primary concern was the glory of God. Now, I think you, you just have to stop and wrestle with that. Because I think in most of our minds, the alleviation of human suffering is the ultimate concern. That's, that's the highest value. And so this story is hard to get your head around. And it isn't going to get any easier in the next two verses. L listen to those verses. Listen, listen to verse 5 and 6. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. John wants that to get our attention. That's not how people think. We would want that to read. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he went immediately. But that's not what it says. And that brings us back to our conundrum. How could it have been loving to choose God's glory over their suffering? That might be the most important question in all the Bible because wrestling with that question forces you into dealing with ultimate things. It forces you to ask ultimate questions like, what does it ultimately matter if we heal bodies but lose souls? What, what good is it ultimately if we go around healing the sick and even raising the dead without helping people to the place where they can see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ so as to be saved? Wouldn't we just be working for the food that perishes, to steal a phrase from chapter 6? Wouldn't we be just rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic to steal a phrase from 20th century history? Isn't the most loving thing, the most ultimately significant thing. Isn't 
it the case that if we truly love people, then we will care the most about the eternal suffering that awaits those people who do not have a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Isn't that the only conclusion that helps us make sense of this story? I think that is where John is leading us. I think he wants us to understand that Jesus is ultimately concerned with the glory of God because it is only when we see him as he is and as he is in Christ that we can be saved. And that is the most important thing. And therefore, helping people see that is the most loving thing. I think that is what we're supposed to conclude after wrestling with this language. Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, so he let Lazarus die. He let Mary and Martha grieve so that he could show them the glory of God. Verse 7, then after this he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. Once again, we notice the disciples misunderstanding Jesus and taking his words in a crassly literalistic way, and there is a lesson in there for some of us, I'm sure. But we also see that Jesus is concerned not just with the salvation of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, but also with the faith and salvation of the disciples. Part of his reasoning in all of this is that you, the disciples, may believe. And that's just a reminder that God sees the whole board. We just see the loved one in front of us. Mary and Martha just wanted Lazarus to be healed. But Jesus was thinking better and doing bigger. And I think it's helpful for us to see that. Verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother, so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Now, we would be remiss if we didn't remark upon the fact that 
that is probably the most fully formed statement of faith attributed to any person, male or female, in any of the Gospels prior to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This blows Peter's confession in Mark 8 out of the water. Listen again to what she says. Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. That's as good as it gets before the cross and the empty tomb. This woman had deep, mature, and growing faith in Christ. We should also probably notice the words that Jesus is using here. He says that whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. The first part of that I think is easy to understand. If a person has faith in Christ, then even if he or she dies, as Lazarus has done, then that person will rise again, as Lazarus is about to do. The second part is a little trickier. What does it mean that everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Because, of course, whatever it means, it can't mean the opposite of what he's just said, that some will die and rise again like Lazarus. So what does it mean? Colin Cruz is helpful here. He says, this will be literally true of the last generation of believers. Of other believers, it is true in the sense that not even death can break their fellowship with God. I think that is exactly right. Sometimes Jesus is saying stuff that needs to be understood in a couple of different ways simultaneously. Verse 28, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. When she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Now, it is so important for us to see that Jesus wept. Death is a tragedy, even to the one who knows that it will not have the last laugh, even to the one who came down from heaven and who will lead us there at the last, even he, seeing all of that, weeps. So, to state the obvious, you can weep at the funeral of your loved ones. Weeping is not an indication of unfaith. It is an indication of humanity. Human beings weep. And human beings with faith can weep with faith. We can grieve the loss while rejoicing in our hope. Those two things can go together in a human heart because they went together in the heart of Jesus Christ, who was fully God and also fully human. Thanks be to God. Verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. 
Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now again, we we must remind ourselves that this is a sign, not just any sign, is the penultimate sign in the Gospel of John, and it points to the ultimate sign. It points to the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. This sign is saying that Jesus has power over even death. His word is life everlasting. I love what Matthew Henry says here. He says, this loud call was a figure, first of the gospel call, by which dead souls were to be brought out of the grave of sin. Secondly, of the sound of the archangel's trumpet at the last day, with which they that sleep in the dust shall be awakened and summoned before the great tribunal, when Christ shall descend with a shout, a call, or command like this here, come forth. He shall call both to the heavens for their souls and to the earth for their bodies, that he may judge his people. D.A. Carson refers to this miracle as an acted parable of the life-giving power of Jesus. I think that is exactly right. Verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. I think these might be the most damning words in John's gospel. The leaders in Jerusalem are concerned only to protect their place, their prominence, their preferment within the nation. They don't care that a man has just been raised from the dead. They don't want to think about what that means about the identity and authority of Jesus. They just see in it an end to their reign. That is damnably short-sighted and selfish. Verse 49, But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. John has prepared us now for the final confrontation between Jesus 
and the Jerusalem authorities. The die has been cast. The decision has been made. The rulers of the earth have taken counsel against the Lord and his anointed, and Caiaphas has spoken better than he knew. Truly, one man will die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one all of the children of God from every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet earth. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources, you can find those over at the website at www.intotheword.ca. You can also check us out on Facebook, and I hope that you do. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there, and we post daily encouragements and conversation starters. Hope to see you there. And I hope to see you again tomorrow, right here, for another episode of Into the Word. Thank you.